Last week, we saw that Jesus is like a grain of wheat which gives itself up to bear much fruit. Jesus, in this passage, tells us that he will give himself up to die and be buried in order to reap a harvest. Verses 32 and 33 indicate to us a harvest of saved Jews and Gentiles, all people. When he dies, that is when he is lifted up, he will draw all kinds of people to himself, both Jews and Gentiles. This is what we saw last week. This is how Jesus responds to these Gentiles coming to him. Yes, it is the hour for me to receive the Gentiles to myself. This was the main idea that we saw last week, that Jesus is like a grain of wheat which gives itself up in order to bear much fruit. We're looking especially at verses 24 to 28 of John 12 today. And the big idea of today's message is simple, and it's based on verse 26. Jesus' people must be like Jesus himself. We must also be like grains of wheat, which give ourselves up to bear much fruit. I told you last week the story of the doctor who explains to a young boy that his sister needs a blood donor and that it is a matter of life and death that she receive blood from someone who has the same blood type as her. And the doctor explains that the boy has this blood type and that the boy could be a donor for his sister. The boy thinks soberly about it, yet briefly, and concludes that he will donate his blood. He hugs his parents and then allows the doctor to draw the blood. And after a few moments, the doctor says that they are finished. And the boy, very, very serious, says, when will I die? The doctor realizes that the boy misunderstood when he said that it was a matter of life and death. The boy thought that he himself would die in order that his sister would live. And yet he was willing to give blood to his sister in order that she would live. And I told you last week that Jesus is something like that. Jesus is is one who doesn't misunderstand, but realizes that he must give himself up for the sake of others. And without misunderstanding, Jesus embraces that task, that role, that he will die so that others would live. He will be like a grain of wheat that goes into the ground and dies and is buried in order that there would be much fruit. I told you last week that Jesus is like that boy. I'm telling you this week that we must be like that too. We must be like that boy. We who claim to belong to Jesus must also be people who are ready to give ourselves up for the sake of others. Let's explore this idea in greater detail, beginning with the fact that Jesus' people are his servants. Jesus' people are his servants. We who belong to Jesus are his brothers and sisters, but not his peers. Like the brothers of Joseph back in Genesis, who had to bow before him 
when he ascended to Pharaoh's right hand. So we must bow before Jesus, who has been exalted and given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Yes, Hebrews tells us that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Yes, Hebrews tells us that he has brought many sons to glory, but don't mistake, uh, don't mistakenly think that we are Jesus' peers, that we are Jesus' equals. No, Jesus is the exalted brother before whom we must bow. John Piper wrote an article on January 1st, 1995, entitled, Brothers, Tell Them Not to Serve God, in which he urged pastors to tell people not to serve God. What did he mean by it? Well, he says, quote, There is a way to serve God that belittles and dishonors Him. End quote. Of course, that's true. If we think that we put God in our debt or that somehow like we help Him and like improve His bottom line, like God's blessedness increases if we're on His side, you know, that He can be more profitable with us than without us. And that, that I think, is the main point that Piper's making, to be fair to Him. But in that particular article, John Piper strikes an imbalanced and an inaccurate theological note. Reasoning from the fact that there is a way to serve God that belittles and dishonors him in all kinds of erroneous ways, Piper develops this idea poorly. He says, among other things, quote, God is not looking for people to work for him, end quote. He rightly says, quote, if we would have the gift of justification, we dare not work. God is the workman in this affair. And what he gets is the glory of being the benefactor of grace, not the beneficiary of service, end quote. And that's true. But Piper goes on to say, nor should we think that after justification, our labor for God begins. Those who make a work out of sanctification cry down the glory of God, end quote. And he further says, when we compare our relationship with God to the relationship between servant and master, the comparison is not perfect, end quote. Brothers and sisters, listen, the call to faith in Christ absolutely is a call to work for God. And while sanctification is synergistic, as opposed to justification, which is monergistic, which means that God works all by himself in, in justification. We don't do anything. We don't work in any way in our justification. Well, sanctification is synergistic, which means that we do it with the help that God provides. We are absolutely working in sanctification. We are not passive in sanctification. It is a work. It is a synergistic work. Yes, we do it with God's help, with God's aid, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But it is work that we do. And the comparison between servant and master is right here in the passage in front of us. Jesus uses that comparison. In fact, it's actually not even a comparison. It's a description of the nature of our relationship to Jesus. We are His servants. 
He is our master. It wouldn't be accurate to say that my relationship with Mel may be compared to that of a husband and wife. It's not a comparison. It's a description. We are not like husband and wife. We are husband and wife. And the relationship between Jesus and his people is not like master and servant. It is master and servant. Jesus' people are his servants. Look at verse 26 and argue with Jesus if you don't like that point and prefer Piper's perspective. We are his servants. Now let's look at the type of servants that we should be. Mel and I watched Gladiator again the other night in which Russell Crowe plays a character named Maximus who is a general of a particular division of the Roman army and a loyal servant to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. I won't spoil the movie in case you haven't seen it. But suffice it to say that Maximus is supremely loyal and faithful and selfless in his service of the emperor and of the empire itself. So we should likewise be towards our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we let Rome have generals that are selfless and loyal and faithful and yet in the kingdom of God we can't find one like Maximus? Early in the movie, the emperor asks Maximus to perform one last task in his service. But it is a difficult one and a dangerous one, and it will delay his return home by several months if he survives and is able to return at all. Maximus is given the remainder of the day to think it over, and toward nightfall, we hear Maximus telling his assistant, we may not be able to go home after all implying that he has decided to do what the emperor has requested. Would you forego home for an earthly king? Would you embrace danger for an earthly king? As Maximus did. What about for a heavenly one? What about for King Jesus. We must be servants who are supremely loyal to King Jesus and who are ready to perish in his service. We must be ready to serve and die in the cause of the kingdom. We must be ready to give up, as Mark 10, 29 says, houses or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for Christ's sake and the gospel. Yes, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, as Matthew's parallel passage to ours here in John 12 states. We must be ready, therefore, not only to give up all of these lesser things, but even to lay down our lives in the service of King Jesus for the cause of his kingdom. Anything less is disloyalty to King Jesus. Anything less is idolatry of something else. Making something else more important than following Jesus. 
than serving Jesus. Have you ever thought of the phrase safety first as an idolatrous statement? Strictly speaking, it is. Safety first ought not to be the motto of a Christian. Our attitude must not be safety first or family first or anything else first, but always Jesus first. As D.A. Carson says, the person who loves his life will lose it. It could not be otherwise. For to love one's own life is a brazen denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the apogee of one's perception, and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Such a person loses his life, i.e. causes his own perdition. No, brothers and sisters, we must not be a safety first people. We must not be a family first people or a career first people, let alone a comfort first people or a fun first people. We must be prepared to serve Jesus like Maximus served Marcus Aurelius without reserve, even if it means we can't go home, even if it means discomfort, even if it means danger. The king and his kingdom above all else. And you are going to be confronted with choices that force you to prioritize one over the other. Oftentimes, we can serve Jesus and be physically safe. Other times, we can't. In cases like that, what's it going to be? There's a lot of stress right now about COVID, but what if it was the Black Death, the bubonic plague, the Black Plague? You're stressing about two-point-something million COVID deaths worldwide? What about 100 million plus? Do you realize that as many people died from the Black Death in, I believe it was, I didn't write it down here in this section, but I believe it was the 14th century or 13th? As many people died from the Black Death as have caught COVID. So if everybody who has caught COVID, whether they're asymptomatic, whether they just passed through and got better, or whether they died. If everyone that has caught COVID worldwide died, that would be something like what happened with the Black Death. And obviously, that's not even counting the numbers of people who got sick with the Black Death and then recovered. There were roughly as many deaths from the bubonic plague, oh, and here I have it, 14th century, as the number of COVID cases. Cases. Not deaths, cases. If in God's providence you were alive at, at a time when the bubonic plague was rampant, what would you do if your brother in Christ came down with it? Would you go and read scripture with him and pray with him in his last hours? Or would you leave him to go it alone lest you get sick yourself? 
Would you move toward the sick and the dying in the cities whom the pagans had abandoned to die? Thereby showing the self-giving love of Christ, witnessing to those on the brink of eternity about heaven and hell and a, a savior and a toning lamb who died in their place in order that when their eyes close for the last time, that they will behold Jesus face to face in order that you might bear much fruit? Or would you run like the pagans for the fresh air of the countryside? Or to give another example of danger associated with following Christ, what if you might get beheaded for evangelism? What would you do? The, the high watermark for the church throughout history is not the 21st century Western church. <laughs> Listen to these accounts of the men and women of old. Well, according to a third century source, the non-Christians responded like this to a plague raging at that time. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Well, that was the way that non-Christians handled the plague in the third century. Christians, on the other hand, were characterized this way. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life, serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Glenn Scrivener says, The plagues search us, they discover in us either the way of the flesh, self-preservation, or the way of the spirit, self-sacrifice. The third century plague found in the church a spirit-filled people willing to walk in the way of the master. And history is rife with examples not only of martyrs, people killed for the sake of Christ, but potential martyrs who may have lived to a natural death and yet could not have known at the time whether or not they would live to a natural death. You understand what I mean? We can go back and look at a history book and be like, oh, well, we don't have to worry at this part of his story because we know that he doesn't die. But how would he know at the time if he was going to die? John Knox the great Scottish reformer is a classic example of this. He never ended up being killed, but he died as an old man with friends and family around. But many times prior to that, he was in danger of being martyred. In fact, he served as a bodyguard to a guy that ended up being captured and burned at the stake. <clears throat> and yet, though he was many times in danger of being martyred, he stepped up to the plate to look death in the eye each time. John Knox is, is a man that history remembers as being full of courage. 
it was said that he feared no man. That he would, he would literally go alone into a situation where nobody was friendly towards him. <laughs> you know, bring, faithfully bring a biblical rebuke. And he just didn't care. He just was afraid of no one. One time, one notable time was when he was told that if he showed up to preach at St. Andrew's Church, which was Roman Catholic, he would be shot in the nose. <laughs> and this was not, this was, this was not, <laughs> this was not a uh, metaphor. <laughs> well, John Knox showed up anyway at this Roman Catholic Church and preached about the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and the truth of the Protestant gospel. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this. Are you prepared to be shot in the nose for Christ? The genuine biblical life is not promised to be easy nor safe. Will you embrace the perils of going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. What does it look like? These are just examples, right? These are just examples. What does it look like in the midst of a pandemic to follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ in the midst of persecution? Or to broaden the field to include more than physical danger. What does it look like to follow Christ when it would mean financial suicide because of the loss of a career? What does it mean, or pardon me, what does it look like to follow Christ when it will mean the rejection of family and friends? I once had the privilege of baptizing a young lady who had become a Protestant Christian. And her Roman Catholic family rejected her for her confession that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, against the Mariolatry, against the intercession of the saints, against sacramentalism, that Jesus alone can save her. She was rejected by her Roman Catholic family. What does it look like to follow Christ when it will mean that? Or whatever else. These are just examples. The point is that you, for sure, if you are trying to follow Christ, you will come to a fork in the road. In fact, multiple forks in the road. Where each time, in Scrivener's words, you will either have to walk in the way of the flesh, self-preservation, or the way of the Spirit, self-sacrifice. If you are trying to follow Christ, rest assured, you will come to a point where your soul will be troubled as Christ's was, and you'll be tempted to pray as Christ was, Father, save me from this hour. Verse 27. When Jesus thought about going into the ground like a grain of wheat, he said, now is my soul troubled. But what should I pray? Father, save me from this hour? Likewise, you will come to a point where you're going to say, my soul is troubled. 
But what are you going to pray? Father, save me from this hour? In that moment, realize this. For a purpose, you will have come to that hour. Whatever that hour may be. Just as Jesus was appointed to die as a grain of wheat, God in his sovereign plan has ordained that you, Christians, function also like a grain of wheat. You will give yourself up in many little ways throughout the faithful Christian life in order that you may bear fruit. Each time tell yourself as Jesus did, no, I'm not going to pray, Father, save me from this hour. For a purpose, I have come to this hour. Embrace that purpose as Jesus did. And one day you may have to give up your very life in order to bear fruit. I don't know the future. You don't know the future, but it is not outside the realm of possibility. That one day you will be called upon to give up your life in the service of Christ. Tell yourself even then, as Jesus did, for a purpose I have come to this hour. Brethren, serve Christ. Serve others. Seek to bear much fruit in this world. Serve, not as Maximus for Rome, but as Christians for Christ and his kingdom. Put your comfort, your safety, your family, your possessions, your house, your dreams, put all in subjection to the overarching call of Christ. Follow me. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where Jesus is and what he is doing, there his servant is. And that's what his servant is doing. Don't pray, Father, save me from this hour, but pray rather, Father, glorify your name. And now hear this as a motivation. If anyone serves Christ, the Father will honor him. That's at the end of 26. Again, going back to Gladiator, there is a scene in which the emperor himself deflects praise away from himself and says, honor Maximus. He won the battle. Though it's not an exact parallel because we don't deserve credit for winning the battle as Maximus did. There is an analogous aspect to our service of Christ. When we are faithful servants of Christ, the Father recognizes it and honors it. This scripture tells us. As the emperor recognized and honored Maximus for his service, it's astounding to read in the scripture that the Father will honor us for serving Christ. Wouldn't you love to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Then serve Christ. As a soldier of the upside down kingdom, in which grains of wheat are glorious, in which we gain by giving, 
in which we truly live by dying. Serve Christ. We are servants of Christ. Let us be good and faithful servants of Christ. Let us be servants who prioritize Christ and his kingdom above all else. Not safety first or whatever else. But Jesus first. Let us embrace God's sovereignty in planning when and where, how, in what manner we are to lay down ourselves for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom. Let us serve for the honor of God. Glorify your name. And let us serve for the honor that comes from God. If anyone serve me, Christ says, the Father will honor him. As the one who laid down his life as a grain of wheat for us, living and dying in our place and rising that we might rise with him. Isn't Jesus worth it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all.